one of the things that we've done, you've noticed that uh, week by week here, we take a church and a pastor by name from York Region somewhere, and we pray for them. And sometimes they're within our family of churches in the Alliance, and a lot of times they're not. And uh, we have a wonderful friend here this morning. I'm going to completely, well, it won't embarrass him, but maybe Margaret. But uh, <laughs> Pete and Margaret was pastor at St. John's Anglican on the Hill in Richmond Hill for many, many years. He has been a friend to me for over 15 years. One of the reasons why God has blessed this church <clears throat> is for that reason. We inculcated in the heart of this church from day one praying for other churches of other denominations because any church that holds up Jesus and is faithful to his word is a teammate, they're not a competitor. And Pete, uh, Margaret, would you stand? I want everyone to see you. Yes, I am going to completely. I don't know if we, sorry we can't get you us on camera, everybody. Turn around and wave. Let's say thanks to Pete. <clears throat> I had no idea he was coming today. I had a different illustration to start with, and this one's even better because... Uh, Pete would take sometimes my picture or they put up Summit's name in their services and they would spend time praying for us. And I have known nothing but support and encouragement from a fellow pastor just a few kilometers away. And I love you, man. And I think that's why one of the reasons that God has blessed us. And uh, I'm just so thankful for that. <clears throat> you know, the church is a funny thing. I, there's a friend of mine who was a counselor. And he was a pastor for many years, a couple decades. And then he's been a, he was a counselor for the last 30 and, uh, until he passed away. <clears throat> and I have a, a book by him, and, and you know, he spoke into my life. And at one point when church life up in Ottawa was most frustrating, uh, we were having coffee, and he said to me this, it was the one time he was a little despairing, and he said, Jerry, the church is a great idea. <laughs> and some of you that have gone through church turmoil, you know that pain, you know. <clears throat> and uh, as my mom, I, you know, I love what my mom said. She uh, taught me this, uh, and I've shared it with you before. I'll share it probably hundreds of times again. She would say, the church, by its very nature, is prone to conflict. It just is. The gathering of broken people, the expectations we place on ourselves, and all other kinds of dynamics, how intimate our lives are compared to many other people that we have acquaintances in passing, it just sets it up to be more ripe and vulnerable to conflict. And uh, I was so thankful for that <clears throat> uh, upbringing because they loved the church even with all of its warts and pains. I grew up in a home that loved the church. Uh, my dad and my mom went to a beach in Cartagena, Colombia one time for a, a retreat and this is what they did on vacation anyway. They laid on a beach with a legal pad and wrote out every major church conflict. He was a district superintendent. Ma laid out every major church conflict that he had, had to oversee. I mean the real serious ones. Church splits, ugly stuff. There was over 80 of them in his 20 some years uh, as a district superintendent. And he said to me, Jerry, 
there was only about maybe 5 or 8% of those that had anything to do with real theology or anything. Mostly, it was interpersonal differences. People who covered their carnality and their desires for power, their self-centeredness uh, with you know, spiritual language and all of that. And uh, you know, it reminds me of, uh, if you want to read a great book, it's just a little book. I like little books. Uh, but this one's powerful, and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together. And in his book, <clears throat> he talked about fellowship and the nature of communal living. And you have to actually do a little bit of adjustment because he literally was living communally. But so if you can make that adjustment in your thinking, it is one of the richest books on church life, and especially when it comes to conflict. And here's what he said. People have, he used the words ideal, <clears throat> I would say, um, yeah, people who hold an ideal of Christian community and fellowship, but don't actually love the real people in front of them, it is those people who destroy community. It's easy to love an idea, to say we support a concept. It's a whole other thing to love real people sitting right in front of me. So, uh, as we've been looking at, uh, you know, the emphasis that the elders and the staff worked through this past uh, fall, and we identified three major areas of focus. They're not our vision and values, but they have to, we got to nail these uh, for, in order for the church to, you know, we just decided to put emphasis on a few things. They do tie to many of our values and stuff. But um, uh, the first one we're going to look at, and one of them is to rebuild relational connection and community. The, the devastation of COVID and all of its fallout as a result. We must pay attention to this. And so this is what we're going to talk about in this month of prayer and fasting. Next week we're going to talk about, or actually Anna's going to preach on the revitalizing the next generation, our youth, children, young adults. And so if you're in the room, you need to be there to help our youth, young adults, and children or your grandchildren or whatever. And... Uh, you need to be there to understand that one and see how we can do that. And then the last one is we're going to be looking at is um, to re-engage in the life, ministry, and mission of the church because we've been disengaged, all of so many of us, over a three-year period. And it's, isn't it hard to get back in, like just to get going again? We've deformed habits, so we're going to talk about that. So today, rebuilding relational connection um, as, a, as a text, I want to use one that, relax, this passage only has three verses. And for those of you who are, haven't been here in the last month, as we exegeted John all the way through, sometimes there were 50 or so. So this is a good thing. Let's look together. Psalm 133, verse 1. This is a, this is a prayer and a praise, uh, and it's, it was written by David, and it was a part of the, what they call the Song of Ascents. It was what was sung by the people of God from all Israel as they made their way up the hill, up, up to Jerusalem, to the temple where they would meet God. So can you imagine uh, throngs of believers singing? And here's what they would sing. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together and sisters in unity. Behold means to stop and look Take notice. 
See it. Envision it. Let it grip you. Well, if we get seized by this, then uh, this is what he's calling us to. It is good in its moral quality, and it is pleasant, that is pleasing and enjoyable, desirable in our experience. So for all of God's family to live in unity, that is in loving connection, community, togetherness, moving in sync in the same direction. Then he gives us the first of a few illustrations to try to illustrate what, how blessed this blessing is. Uh, the first one is going to make no sense to us. Uh, it is like the precious oil on the head running down onto the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his ro- robes and all that. So I don't know how many would like that experience. Yeah, form a line. <laughs> form a line. We've got some buckets of oil. We're just going to pour it all over you. Now, see, here's what he's talking about, something very specific here. The context of this is from the Older Testament in the book of Exodus. What happens is he's talking about the consecration and the commissioning and the anointing of Aaron as high priest over the people. And there's very specific uh, oil that was to be used. Now, I won't go into the time today, but if you want to look at Exodus chapter 30, verse 23, they describe this oil and how much of it they were to use. And I'm telling you, you, some of you say, man, when I get home from church, I smell like Jerry. Um, You you imagine being around Aaron and how much of this, it was incredibly fragrant. And uh, so this is the background of it. And the smell of that reminded all of the people that he was going to meet with God on their behalf. And how blessed to know that through what Aaron was doing, the blessing of God upon the people, the forgiveness of their sins, and the joy of being part of the family of God just would have just, you know, just been in their hearts and their minds. So it's the sense that there's an awful lot of it. There's abundance, and it's flowing, and it brought great joy to the people. And so that's what that... Then he gives a second one. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in all of Israel. And as uh, the warm uh, air from the the Mediterranean Sea would come up, and uh, at times this this mountain is covered with snow even in Israel, and the warm air would hit the cool air mass, and this dew would just descend and blanket the surrounding mountains. And so this would just waft down onto other regions. And so Zion, again, as you know, the study of the scripture is this place of the uh, symbolic of the, the presence of God. And so what we see here is he's using an illustration about how the pleasant and the refreshment of the presence of God and experiencing that together. And he ends his psalm with these words, for there, for there, the Lord commands the blessing or the Lord commanded the blessing and still does. Where Yahweh, the Lord, commanded, he didn't hint at it, didn't think about it, didn't sort of tease them with it. He, he commanded it. And where God speaks and commands directly his, with his authority, you can be assured it's carried out. And there he commands the blessing. And what is the blessing? Life the very life of God in the New Testament translated Zoe, the very life of God himself within his people 
in them, among them, through them. And the beauty of it is it just doesn't end with an experience. It lasts forevermore. It's their continued experience, not only in this life, but stretching all the way through into eternity in the new heaven and new earth. As long as God's people are dwelling in unity, God commands the blessing. I think that's beautiful. Now, the significant symbol in these illustrations, this was, came to me new this time. I didn't ever seen this before. That there are three symbols that are used or words that are stated that are all deeply symbolic. It's the words oil, the words water or dew, and the word life. And they all connect to what the scripture teaches about the presence of God and the Holy Spirit. When his people dwell in unity, the Spirit of God moves and he anoints their ministry and service, sets them apart for himself. He refreshes them in their spirit and soul and grants the very life of God within that group of people. I love what God is saying through his word to us. So uh, there's one thing as you read uh, many uh, books on, you know, church unity and all the togetherness and all that stuff, what, what they, many of them will emphasize is this, that in the Newer Testament, in the New Covenant, what happens when we trust in Christ is that we actually positionally, spiritually are in unity. You don't create it as a part of the body of Christ. The commands are to maintain it, to keep it, to guard it, to not let it unravel. You see, we often talk about, uh, you know, how to come, become like Jesus. And one of the ways we become like Jesus helps us to maintain our unity. You know, uh, we become like him in our thoughts and attitudes and perspectives. So I just want to say that. The first thing is this. We think like Jesus. You will never maintain unity. We will never maintain unity, togetherness, connection, true community, if we don't have the mind of Jesus, if we don't think like Christ. Jesus, through his word, renews our minds and shapes our thinking, reveals his will, instructs and forms our worldview. I heard an absolutely dumbfounding uh, statistic a couple of, uh, about a month and a half ago. Uh, an Arizona University, Christian University, with um, Barna Research, did the research in the United States. You know what? They, they interviewed pastors, only pastors, from all senior pastors, associate pastors, preaching, teaching pastors, youth pastors, executive pastors, kids pastors, all of them, worship pastors. Here's their conclusion. Only 48%, sorry, 41% of pastors in the United States own an orthodox Christian worldview. The highest percentage was senior pastors at 48. All the way down to 
executive pastors at 8% and kids pastors at 12% and stuff. Friends, if that's what's happening in our leadership in churches, how in the world are we going to be able to function as believers together as a body? If we don't even have the mind of Christ, we don't even know what a Christian worldview is. We don't think like Jesus. So again, in our discipleship framework at, at Summit, one of the things we talk about often is that Christ transforms us or changes us into his image. That is, that we become like him in our character, in our thinking and attitudes, in our values and affections, but especially in, in what we think. If we don't see life through his lenses, it will be very difficult for us to be unified because we're, while we try to be one, we will all be shaped by conflicting ideologies, changing standards, and our subjective feelings, the opinions of our world. Jesus is truth, and his word is truth, and navigating this together through the stormy sea of philosophic, ethic, moral, relational and spiritual variants are all around us. It's going to be very, very difficult. Now, I'm not saying that absolutely every single thing that we as a church, like groupthink, like conformity to, you know, summit or to me or to the board, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking absolute perspective on the major things of the Christian faith, the core key doctrines, the tenets of our faith. <clears throat> One of the biggest challenges in the New Testament churches was to change their thinking with the issue of togetherness, especially around race and gender and economic and social status. Every day, Paul was, he stared at this colossal problem of getting believers, that is, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, from across the entire spectrum of Roman society to embrace complete, a completely different mindset about each other. He said, we're familiar with these. I had more, but I'll just pick out the key verses in each section. Galatians 3, he talks about there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Colossians 3, here there is no Greek, no Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So God wants, through Paul, wants us to know that we must think differently to know and think and believe that in Christ and in God's kingdom, things are different. We don't look at people purely from a worldly point of view. And in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament, it was completely the polar opposite to what Jesus thought and taught. His followers, you and I, are to see people differently with their differences. In fact, we see unity in differentness. Transcending our differences does not mean eradicating our differences. Rather, it means celebrating them. Uh, Scott McKnight, in his book, The Fellowship of Difference, says hierarchy, status, reputation, and connections were the Roman Empire. The church, though, was not the empire. So when the Christians gathered to worship and fellowship and meet together, eat and eat, the ruthless, divisive, status-shaped backbone of the empire was snapped. There would be no relational chasm anymore between Roman, Greek, Egyptian, or barbarian. You see, this was God's grand social experiment. 
and the Roman world from the elites to the slaves experienced the church as nothing short of a wild revolution of equality, a mixed assembly of difference, that is D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T-S. It's a great book if you want to read that. Oh, here it is here. This was God's grand social experiment, a mixed assembly of difference. We must understand that when the church gathers together, it was something so contrary to the world around it. So how do we maintain our unity? Well, we think like Jesus. That's first. We must have his mindset. We must see one another differently. We must have a different way we think about people, about race, about men and women. You know, all of this. We need, we need to understand and see each other the way Jesus does. Here's the second one. I know these sound pie in the sky, but as I think about it and describe it, I hope we'll connect with it. We live in the Spirit. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is not secondary, peripheral, or an ignored part of your faith, friends. He is God, the Spirit. As A.W. Tozer said, it is the Spirit of God who makes everything real. It's the Spirit or nothing. You don't understand the scripture. You aren't drawn to Christ. You aren't regenerated. You aren't sanctified. You aren't gifted. It's everything is about the Holy Spirit in you, the Spirit of Christ. You can't ignore him. And in order for the church to see this type of countercultural unity, it takes a power greater than us to transform our hearts and to ignite our will to act differently. This power is found through God the Spirit. And those who surrender to Christ and who are ongoingly filled with His Spirit are the ones who are best resourced to transcend their natural mindsets and capabilities. James Dunn, an old writer, wrote in a commentary on the book of Acts. He says that the Holy Spirit of God transcends human ability to transform human inability. He transforms he transcends human abilities to transform our inabilities. That is, to enable us to do what we don't naturally want to or are able to. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit among us. So when Paul looked at this situation, including this roughneck, sex-crazed, powerful, idolatrous Gentiles, part, supposed to be part of the family of God meant to be one, he knew this was impossible. But he believed that through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, both could hop out of their well-worn ruts of segregation and forge an entire new path together. You see, this is what the presence and influence of the Holy Spirit does. He can make things right and good and new within the church family, within the kingdom of God, unlike the world around us. How does he do that? Well, he illuminates truth, teaching us God's will and reminding us of Jesus' words. He refills our hearts with the love of God. Romans 5, 5, the love of God is poured out through our hearts, in our hearts, by the Holy Spirit. He transforms us, changing us into the character and the kind of people who can and want to live at peace with one another. He leads us into the worship of Christ, 
You know, it's very fascinating. A little sidebar. In Ephesians 5, when it talks about, you know, be filled ongoingly over and over every time the situation arises with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes right into, without a sentence break, he talks about worship and singing. Making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks always to everything in the Father in the name of Jesus. Worship also leads us in unity when we're under the power of the Holy Spirit because in worship, there's no me or I. Worship, it is us and we. Do you wonder why singing is such an important part of the family of God from the Older Testament right through into the new heaven, the new earth? Because of its unifying factor. The Spirit also imparts a grander vision for our lives as we see, uh, you know, not just, you know, going to school and getting a job and making cash, but to serve His holy purposes in whatever vocation God leads us to. There's bi- he has bigger plans. He lifts us all above our petty preoccupations that divides our world. <clears throat> and then He imparts spiritual gifts to every believer enabling you to build the body of Christ and extend the kingdom of God. It's very fascinating in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. He's, he's talking about oh, this whole ch- book is about the church and its unity, and right in the middle of it, he says, when each part is working properly, in chapter 4, 16, the body grows, it'll grow, so it builds itself up in love. There's something about being on a common mission together. When we're all engaged in Jesus ideas and his initiatives for why the church exists. Max Lucado in his book, Applause of Heaven, years ago said this. He says, when those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. So friends, let's get a net or a fishing rod. When we're all about something that we can all rally around, it lifts us and transcends us above our petty preoccupations and our petty differences. And we are as one person worshiping our God as one body and we are actually doing what he calls us to do. The gifts are not only for edifying the church, but for unifying the church as each does its part. Here's, so Scott in his book says this, therefore, the more spirit, the more unity. The less unity, the less spirit. So he does this. And being filled with his spirit enables us to do what we naturally cannot do. And the Holy Spirit's presence and his activity among us is so linked to our unity and our love for one another. I find it fascinating. Well, I'll get to it. I'll leave it there. So, Well, no, maybe I won't. I'll say this. Um, I'm sorry. It's really interesting that in Ephesians chapter 4, what happens in this chapter is... He's, he's, you know, um, he's talking about all of these sins, and many of them in this chunk are relational sins. And right in the middle of it, he says two statements that are absolutely devastating to a church, that if we don't check our sin, and especially our relational sins with one another, two things happen. Number one, we give ground to the enemy within our body. He says, don't let the devil have opportunity That means the word is really, the Greek word is topos, to give ground that's not rightfully his. The second one is we grieve the Holy Spirit 
Think about this in a body, a church. When we don't pay attention to the relational connections and community and resolving conflicts and loving one another and serving each other in love, here's what happens. If we're conflicted and sinning against each other, what happens? First of all, the spirit is, or Satan is given ground to work among us. And secondly, the spirit is grieved and quenched. We shut the tap of his ministry off. And that's devastating to a church. So, lastly and very quickly, we love as the Father loves. We love as the Father. Now, we could spend all morning talking about how does the Father love. But I just want to highlight two things because the Scripture uses very specific phrases as the Father does or as God does for us. Two notable ways. First, we accept each other. We accept one another. To accept means to welcome, to acknowledge, and to receive with respect one another as persons in God's image. It comes from a Greek word called proslambano. Pros means towards or interactively with, and lambano means to lay hold of with initiative. That's what we're to be doing, to proactively welcome and receive, to respect with personal interest. It includes the aspect of opening one's hearts to others. In Romans chapter 15, verse 7, Paul is summarizing a bunch of things. He says, therefore, welcome, accept, pros lambano one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why do we do that? Because Christ has done that for us. It's so easy once we're in the family of God to become self-righteous. It's so easy if you think of the parable of the lost son uh, to become the older brother after we've been saved. So we welcome and accept one another because that's how God in Christ has accepted us. We secondly practice forgiving one another, accepting and forgiving. One is on the way in and one is along the journey because, listen, let's make no mistake, you and I bruise each other. I mean, we bump each other. We sometimes step on toes. Sometimes there's a little more head-on collision. You know, that's the nature of being human and living in deep community. Half the New Testament is written, not that things wouldn't happen, but here's what we do because this happens naturally in the church. So we practice forgiving one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as, that's a ratio word, as God in Christ forgave you. So on both a theological and a practical level, forgiveness is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christ follower. True forgiveness does come at a cost. There's no question. But it is pursued intentionally within the community. And I want to read you something that came from Tim Keller. Uh, Timothy Keller was a pastor in New York and um, a tremendous thinker and writer. He says, we must never tire of forgiving and repenting and seeking to repair our relationships. Now, church, listen. He identifies two things from the mouth of Jesus. One in Matthew chapter 5, verse 
23 to 26, Jesus tells us that we should go to someone if we know they have something against us. Christians only usually think that, oh, if I got something with someone, I need to go to them and make it right. Jesus in Matthew, you read this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if you know someone else has something against you, you go. You make it right. He says it's more important even than your giving and worship. Because without it, there's disunity. And in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, Matthew 18, he says that we should, approach, we should approach someone if we have something against them. So if we know someone's got something against us, where to go? If we know we've got something against someone, we go. In short, he said, if any relationship has cooled off or weakened in any way, it's always the, your move. I know that that is very countercultural to many of us in this room. And this is a challenge I have leading an intercultural church. Not only is it against human nature, but it's sometimes against culture and our families of origin. But Jesus is making a brand new humanity, a new togetherness, and in that kingdom, he operates by different principles. And I know it's a challenge. It's always our move when there's tension. He says, God holds you responsible to reach out and repair a tattered relationship. In short, anyone, it's always your move. It doesn't matter who started it. And as a Christ follower, a Christ follower is responsible to begin the process of reconciliation regardless of how the alienation occurred or began. Now, I hope you're starting to feel it. I can tell in the room. This is how, imagine how Jesus' disciples hearing him say that felt. Because they had law to back them, eye for an eye. They had a law to back them that after three times, I don't need to forgive them again. Peacemaking and healing are at the core of the Christian identity. And he goes on to say this statement, and I'll just let it just, just you know, seep into our souls. There is no way to authentically do spiritual formation in Christ unless we practice healing and reconciliation. Our right relationship with God, my first mentor, Reverend Gordon Wishart said, is developed and maintained through right relationship with one another. So for people who say, I'm good with God, but they have carnage around them that is incompatible with the teaching of Jesus. He does give a little exception. He says, like, so far it depends on you, the Holy Spirit said, be at peace. So if you've tried and you've tried and you're committed to still trying, that's great, you do. If someone has just shut down and refuses. Now, I know there's issues to deal with regarding trust and all that, but that's for another one. Community is the place, Henry Nouwen said, where the person you least like to live with always lives. <laughs> Isn't that true? It is. 
You see, this is being real about the church and about unity and the community. It's not an ideal somewhere because there's always going to be people in our midst whom we don't naturally connect with, who rub us the wrong way, whose personalities irritate us, who, you know, all of these kinds of things. And community, true community, is a place where the person you least like to live with always lives. And I was quoting a quote from Parker Palmer, who was a great uh, educator. But, while we want to most avoid this process, it's actually through the process that we begin to experience God. This is how we change. If we only ever avoid and stay away from those who hurt us and disagree with us, if that's how we operate, you may experience pseudo-peace because you're not having to deal with them, but underneath the surface of your heart, there is tension and Christ-likeness is not flourishing. And so often he's giving us an opportunity to see what's really buried in our own hearts, actually. I've shared with you that over the past year, I've gone to a number of people I've gone humbly and I've heard them. I've asked them to forgive me for things that I've done inadvertently or advertently. And I'm committed to do that. I know not everyone's going to agree with everything I say or think, but I am not going to live with intentional, no intention, and broken relationships. I'm committed to that in my life. Our self-centeredness, our self-righteous attitudes, our judgmental spirits, our impatience, our insecurities, and our prejudices, our unforgiving hearts all emerge when that person in community, we think about them or comes near us. And it's an opportunity. Listen to the Spirit, church. He is giving you an invitation for deeper soul work. So he can pour his grace like a skillful doctor. So, it's truly wonderful to behold a church that dwells together in unity. It's good, it's pleasant, there's anointing and refreshing and life giving uh, atmospheres to those who are seeking. It celebrates all of our differences within our people from ages, whatever ethnicity or race, whether male or female, regardless of our economic or social status. The church, as we read already, is nothing short of a wild revolution of equality, a mixed assembly of difference. So transcending our differences doesn't mean eradicating, doesn't mean groupthink. But God commands his blessing upon those who do so. A body of believers that live in such a radical way and wonderful diversity. So we maintain it by developing the thoughts of Jesus and thinking like him. By being filled with a power that is beyond ourselves to enable us to do what we can't do and don't want to do on our own. And by expressing the love of the Father by accepting and forgiving other people. Amen. May God help each of us because every one of us wrestles with this and I'll stand first in line. But I have seen God work in the repairing and healing and it's a beautiful thing. Let's pray.